verses 13 to 25, and it's on your handout. And it's pretty different. If you are here last week, this, this is why John is fascinating to me, because John 2, we're at a wedding. Jesus is incredibly gracious to this couple who's on the verge of public, public shame and disaster, and he meets them with impeccable, incredible kindness and grace. It's very private, it's very quiet, and Jesus shows his love in that way, and we get to see it. Tonight's passage is much more public. And Jesus, if, if he's gracious and John 2, the wedding, when he's at the wedding with the wine. In this passage, he's much more confrontational and, and full of truth. And we're going to kind of look at it together. So let's look at it. I'm going to read it. John 2, 13, 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They say, who in the world are you? So they're saying. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews were super confused, and then they said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me pray for us, and I want to jump in. Let's pray first. Jesus, we thank you that your love has a place for anger. That your love has a place for confrontation and rebuke, and the truth that we desperately need to hear, but sometimes we cover our ears and we shut our mouths and we we cover our eyes because we don't know what to do with it. Jesus, I pray that you would, in the same way, meet us in this place tonight and turn over the tables in our lives that need to be turned over. Lord, you alone can meet us like that. You alone can do that as one who's both full of grace and truth. And we pray that you would, even tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I want you to imagine for a moment that it's graduation week. Students have found all the quiet corners of campus and are studying themselves, studying their brains out, writing papers that are hopefully just long enough to meet the professor's needs. Professors are pouring over blue books, marking them with red ink. You know, when a professor gets done, a bad professor gets done with your blue book, it looks like he's killed it because red ink's like it's bleeding everywhere. Uh, parents are about to descend on campus. And imagine for a second that all of the deans of all the schools are gathered at, at President Pasiti's house in the horseshoe, and they're sitting around a conference table together. And they're kind of getting preparations ready for graduation coming up, and they're signing diplomas, and they're making sure everyone's transcript is graduating from their school is in order, and they're kind of all sitting at this table together. 
And all of a sudden, the doors bust open. And it's a graduating senior followed by a few friends. And he calmly walks up to them, looks them in the eye, wipes the papers off the desk, flips the shiny oak table on its head in a pretty impressive show of strength, and then begins lecturing these deans and President Pastides. And he says, this whole school is a joke. This place is corrupt. You say that you're in the name of education, giving us an education, and in reality all you're doing is you want our money. You take and you take and you take. Instead of giving us anything like education, you're taking our money and you're leaving us graduating in crippling debt. This place is a joke and I'm going to burn it to the ground. And imagine the professor or, or dean sitting at the table just with mouth open, forces out the words like, who are you? Who do you think you are? And the student says, listen, kick me out, fail me. I've already got my ticket to UVA Law. You know what the first case I'm trying is? I'm making sure none of you ever practice education again because this place is a shame. And I like to imagine you're just maybe like quietly studying in the horseshoe and you kind of like are watching this happen. You would be shocked. You would be all kinds of emotions were happening. And that's just a little bit of a picture of what's happening in Jesus' passage, this passage right here, where Jesus walks into the temple and he's pissed and he cleans house because things are corrupt and not as they should be. Jesus, it's fascinating. John, John is very clearly doing two things by putting the, the wine passage where Jesus is going to a wedding and he's meeting a couple in their time of need and their place of disgrace and he's transforming their places of failure and shame into places of abundance and joy in beautiful ways and in kind ways. But in this passage, he's, 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 he's literally cleaning house. He's full of anger, righteous anger, moral indignation, and he's actually literally flipping tables over, kicking people out, throwing money all over the floor. It's a crazy situation. I think what John is doing is showing us two things. That Jesus, if you remember the first thing that John said about Jesus, it was this. He was full of two things. On the one hand, he is full of grace. Listen, there is always more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And if you were with us last week, you get to see that Jesus is the kind of person who brings the best wine to a wedding and drinks with failures. And praise Jesus as he does, because that's, that's us, right? That's what we get to do with him, because he's gracious toward us. There's more grace in him than there's sin in us. But John is also saying he's full of something else. He's full of truth, is what he says. He's full of truth, grace and truth. And the truth is so he's so full that he's not afraid to turn over tables in your life. He's not afraid to come in and confront and rebuke and say things, hard things that need to be said and do hard things that need to be done because he loves you. And that's what I want to look at tonight. So when Jesus comes into your life, he always turns over. He flips on their head three tables. When you sort of are, are growing in your faith in Jesus, he's always turning over three tables in your life. Here's the first table. He's turning over, that he's turning over in your life, he's going to turn over if he hasn't already, is your view of God. The first thing that he does is he totally flips on its head your view of God and who he is. Now what's fascinating is most of us, if we're looking and thinking about this passage, we don't know what to do with it. Because we love the idea of a God of grace. We love the idea of a God of love. We have no idea what to do with a God of wrath, and we, know, we have no idea what to do with a God of anger. So if you're on Facebook at all, if you're in Christian circles at all, Christian Facebook circles are kind of some of the worst places on the planet. But one of the things you inevitably probably saw was uh, the Victoria Osteen video that went viral with the Bill Cosby response, which was incredibly beautiful. Because I think Jesus is more like Bill Cosby than Victoria Osteen in, the, in that video. But, you know, if you, if you didn't see it, here's what she basically says. She says, Victoria Osteen is Joel Osteen's wife, and she basically says, listen, here's what she kind of is saying. Do you want to know what, make God, what makes God happy? When you're happy. How do you make God happy? Figure out what makes you happy, and then he's happy. 
And then the Cosby thing is, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You haven't seen this for great. And I think what's interesting, though, is even if we say that's dumb, there's a part of us that loves the idea of a God who is more like, like a sugar daddy. Or think about it. If, Jesus was only, if God was only full of grace and wasn't full of truth, he would be like my grandmother's. I had, two, I had the privilege of having two incredible grandmothers. One, I could walk into her house and say, Mimi, cook me biscuits in a, like a cute way. And she literally would cook me biscuits. Or I could say, Mimi, make me a peanut butter and jelly. And she literally would not only make me a peanut butter and jelly, but she would cut it into like 10 pieces, like little bite-sized pieces, cut off the crust. I mean, it was incredible. She was an incredible woman because she treated me like that. The other grandmother, this has got to get weird, so just embrace this for a second, would rub my feet for as long as I wanted. I know that's weird. Well, I'm a physical touch family, and literally I would put my feet up on her chair, and she would just like rub them for hours. And she would do that. Like, if you're a foot person, she would do that thing where she like gets in the creases of your toes. Oh, it's the best. No, so you will never come back. And that's your last image, and that's okay. Um, but if, if, Jesus, if God is full of grace but not truth, he's like, he's a grandmother. He can never confront and say hard things to you that you need to hear. And you can't take, actually what's fascinating is you can't take your deepest, hardest struggles because all, he's too sentimental. Other hand, if he's only full of truth, he's like a cop that shouldn't be a cop. You ever been pulled by a cop that shouldn't be a cop? Pulled over? I mean, like some, it seems like cops who shouldn't be cops live for that moment to catch you doing something wrong. They live for it. Like, the only thing that brings a smile to their face is catching you doing something wrong. And, if, and you might fear that kind of person, but you're not going to love them. And if that's your view of God, he's full of truth but no grace, you don't love God, you're afraid of him. Your, your heart never bursts with, like, the wonder of grace because you're, you're, you're too busy being afraid of him. And the first thing Jesus does is he flips our view of God on his head. And he says, listen, God actually loves you enough to get angry. God actually loves you enough to turn some tables over in your life for your good, that you might know and come to rest in him. Uh, so the thing we have to figure out, though, is why Jesus gets angry here, because it's very clear that he's pissed, but why is he pissed? And he's pissed because you have to understand something. He's pissed because... The way the temple was set up, you have to understand this quick history lesson. The way the temple was set up is there was an inner room of worship for the Jews and there was an outer court of worship for the Gentiles. And what was happening was there were these vendors that were there because what people came to do was make sacrifices and be in the presence of God. And basically what people, vendors came to do, and a good thing that they came to do, was to actually sell animals that were fit for the sacrifice. And if you didn't bring the right kind of money, they had these exchange booths set up so you could actually, like at the fair or something, where you could get the right currency, get the right tickets to buy the sacrifice. The problem wasn't that they were there. Jesus' problem is where they were. That they were doing, they had such disregard for worship and such disregard for people coming and freely meeting and knowing and being in connection with God that they were doing it in the temple. And it was incredibly distracting, but it, that wasn't, it wasn't just that it was distracting, it was that their hearts were in the wrong place, because instead of wanting people to come and know and worship God, they wanted their money. So instead of treating people like people, to love, and that you want to know the love of God and, and love God themselves, they were treating them like consumers to be taken advantage of. And this pisses Jesus off to no end. And it still does. There's a sense in which, listen... If God doesn't get angry, then he doesn't really, Then his love is pure sentiment. It's, it's too sentimental to do anything or change anything. Just think about for a second. This is the, the first point is by far the longest, so bear with me. 
Think about for a second the world we've lived in for the past month, even the past week. Two things in this last week. Let's not even think about Ferguson. Ferguson is something that the internet has gone crazy about, and rightly so, right? Like, we should look at Ferguson and be mad at what happened and feel a sense of injustice. If we love the people of Ferguson, we should feel mad. But even this past week, two things have happened that have called, caused the internet to go crazy. One was the nude leaks of Jennifer Lawrence and other celebrities. The other was Ray Rice, the video of Ray Rice decking his girlfriend in an elevator. And both of those things, if you've been on the ra- if you've listened to the radio, you've been on Twitter, you've been like a human being who's alive and like talks, you know, like is in connection with the world. Some of you aren't. I'm glad you're here because you're like Tom Hanks and Castaway. And let us be your Wilson, right? Let us be your Wilson. But you get a sense that people are mad. The Jennifer Lawrence stuff that is digital rape. The Ray Rice stuff that is abuse. Of the highest kind. But the reality is we don't get as mad as we should. I don't get as mad as I should. Why? Because we're too, we're too experienced with lust to get freaked out about naked pictures that were hacked and put out against her will. We're too full of losing our temper to get mad at, at seeing a, a grown man hit a woman as hard as he can in the face. And even that being who we are, we still got a little bit mad, rightly so. But here's my question. How do you think God felt about it? When he looks at that place and he looks at what happened, how do you think he feels? And I want you to see, you actually want him to be angry. Because you want him to care about the injustices in your life, not only that you've experienced, but the injustices in the world that your friends have experienced, the things that we've gone through that aren't right. Here's the thing. If God is a God of love, here's what I want you to see. That means he hates everything that's unloving, which means he has to. Which means he has wrath. He has anger at the places and the people he sees that are just willfully and being incredibly unloving, not just toward him but toward one another. Listen to the way that Becky Pippert says it when she's thinking about this idea that God is a God of of anger. Here's what she says: Send your hand out. She says this. People ask, "What kind of a loving God could be filled with wrath?" Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with, do we respond with benign, intolerant, benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger, this is key, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. That is huge to get. Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. The first thing that Jesus does in your life is turn over the table of your view of God, and what he does is he makes it bigger. Flannery Connor said it better. She said, a God, you, a God you understood would be less than yourself. And what she means when she says that is you have to, your, your view of God is too small. Because it doesn't include his love being big enough to drive righteous, right, good anger. So that's the first thing he does. But then he does the second thing. The second table he flips is not, the first one is he flips over the table of your view of God. But the second one he flips is he flips over actually your view of yourself, the way you see yourself. Now, the reason in this passage I wanted to read all the way to verse 24 and 25, because I think verses 24 and 25 are actually the key for you and I to understand ourselves. And here's what Jesus says. 
He's with the people. He's loving people, but he's not trusting them. It says he, he knew what? Because he knew himself what was in the heart of man. He knew, he knows about the people he was with in his day. He knows about us, the people he's with today. Something about our hearts. That in the words of C.S. Lewis, there's, if you read the Space Trilogy, there's a bentness in the human heart. That instead of being curved outward in love to God and in love to one another, it's curved inward and all we do is love ourselves. And because we love ourselves, here's what happened with the fall. Here's what happened with sin. Those biblical words that maybe you don't have categories for. Here's what happened. Is we went from being worshipers who love God and enjoy God and love one another and enjoy one another and love creation and enjoy the gifts of creation without abusing them or being addicted to them. Worshippers who can worship and freely enjoy everything that God gives us as a gift and as something good and with an eye to God. The ultimate giver of those good gifts, right? That's what a worshiper is. But Jesus says basically what's happened with us is we've gone, what sin has done to us and what being turned in ourselves has done is it's made us consumers. Where we're only asking the question, how does this help me? And so what it, what it, what it does to you and me is it makes us use everything. We use each other. We have this is listen. College is the best place to know that because what, if you ever ask yourself, if you're a senior, you get this. Why do you move through relationships so fast in college? Like, why have you sort of you know you don't talk to your the freshman friends anymore? I'm going to guess. I'm going to venture a guess at what happened was because we're so selfish. We just let those relationships go and we find new ones that serve our ends better. And, and instead, what consumers do is they we use we use God. God becomes like our pillow. Like, I, I have a great pillow. I've got two great pillows that have been with me for several years now. And I love those things because when I'm sad, I go sleep on them. But I'm happy. Like, this is going to sound weird, but like if I we're going on like a road vacation, like I bring them with me like because I want to kind of lay on them in the car and like fill them with candy. and you know. It's... But it would be weird. It would be weird if I like started taking, like if I brought a pillow tonight. Like, that would be kind of weird, right? Like, I'd just be like, hey. And you'd be like, why are you holding a pillow? Or if I started letting the pillow kind of run my life and tell me what to do. That's what Christian Smith in his book, Souls in Transition, says. Basically, all of our religion before we get the gospel is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Where we use God to make us feel better about ourselves. And Jesus, this is what's happening in the temple. Instead of the people selling the stuff... Instead of setting it up outside in a way that would help people be connected and love God and love one another better, they're selling it inside because they don't care. They're using God and they're using others to make themselves feel better. In other words, they're not loving others or God, they're loving themselves. And that's exactly what's happening. And the first thing, that if, if the first table is him flipping it over and showing you that God is bigger and better than you thought him to be, the second table is he's flipping it over and he's showing you that you're actually worse than you thought you were. You're actually worse than you thought you Because what's fascinating about this passage is they're doing something very, very religious in a very, very religious place. They're they're the youth group kids. But their motivation is what's off. This is why, listen, I've been in campus ministry for almost nine years. And this is why youth group kids who are the popular youth group kids, young life kids, whatever you were. Part of what happens when you come to college is you go crazy. And you go crazy because you you didn't really love Jesus. When you were in your youth group, you loved the attention of adults. You loved the attention and popularity from your friends. It was kind of cool to do it in high school. Well, guess what? It's not cool in Columbia. It's not cool at USC. 
And so what, what happens is you didn't love Jesus, you love you loved people liking you. And so you go crazy because you go crazy in the name of getting more people to like you. In fact, not getting more people, but getting the right people to like you. Getting the cool, whatever we deem the cool people to like you. And that's what happens because you're worse than you think. And that's exactly what Jesus is not afraid to tell you. I love this story from Fyodor Dostoevsky. I was an English major before I was a psych major. And one of my favorite short stories I've ever read is, is Fyodor Dostoevsky. And he, his, uh, it's called Dream, The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. And in the story, there's this Russian who is he's, he's done with life. He can't take it anymore. And he's going to kill him. He's got plans to kill himself that afternoon. But before he does, he goes and he takes a walk in the street. And as he's on the street, he's heading back toward his apartment where he's going to end his life. There's this little girl. She's a three-year-old little girl that runs up to him and starts tugging at his leg. And he, she's saying something that he can't quite make out. But he gets the sense that she's saying I'm, she, she's lost from her mom. She needs him to take her by the hand and find her mom. And instead, he pushes the little girl away, and he goes up to his apartment where he's going, to end his, he's going to end his life. And before he ends his life, as he's sort of still contemplating, he, he falls into this daydream. And the, in the daydream, he goes back to this world. The world, a familiar world, but something's different. This world has yet to be touched with sin. This world has yet to be touched with selfishness. And he's, he's wondering at this world. He's looking at it. And the people are so incredibly loving and kind toward one another. And the culture is just a beautiful sort of everyone enjoying gifts in the right way. And he's, he's living in this world. But then he begins to do something that's a very bad thing. Is he begins to teach the people how to lie. And he begins to teach the people how to be selfish. And he begins to teach the people how to look out for number one. And here's the way that Dostoevsky puts it, that I think nothing has gotten closer, in my opinion, to what is wrong with you and me. Here's what he says. He says, each of them began to love himself better than anyone else. And indeed, they could not do otherwise. Every one of them became so jealous of his own personality that he strove with might and main to belittle and humble it in others. And therein he saw the whole purpose of his life. We call that in marketing branding. And what, and what John is saying is that's what sin has done to us. We're trying to brand ourselves in a way that makes us look good, but we don't care about others because we're just going to manipulate them to our own ends. And Jesus says, that's what's wrong with you. That, you, that listen, just because you come to RUF doesn't mean you don't manipulate people. You know, I had a counselor say to me one time, you're always either doing one of two things. You're always either manipulating people or ministering to them. You're either using them or loving them. And just because... Listen, in some ways, this is the place where we do it the worst. And this is the place where Jesus has come to turn over some tables. First, he turns over the table of your view of God. Second, he turns over the table of your view of yourself. And then lastly, he turns over the table of your view of him. Now, Jesus, in this passage, he says, throughout his ministry, he says a lot of confusing and sort of enigmatic things. And this this passage is one of them. Because they say, who in the world are you to come and, 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 and do this in the temple? And he says, listen, tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they say, are you crazy? Do you know that it took 46 years to build the place we're talking in right now? And what Jesus is saying is something beautiful. Because what was the temple? The temple was the place where people came to make sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. And to be in the presence of God. To meet the living God. And Jesus is saying something profound. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the temple. 
What this temple has always been pointing to and waiting for and anticipating is me. The, the one that John has already said is two things. He's the Lamb of God who does what? Who comes to take away the sin of the world. How? By sacrificing himself and dying the death that we deserve to die. But he's also, John said, the Word of God. The one who, everything that God wants to say to you wrapped in a person is Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at what Jesus is like. And, John, and Jesus is saying, listen, I don't know what you thought of me. But I'm the temple you've been looking for. I'm the place where the sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins is going to happen. I'm the place where you're going to meet the living God. And the key to understanding this is what he says in verse 17. It's fascinating. The disciples, as they're watching him do this, they have this one scripture that comes to mind. And it's Psalm 69. Literally, we have in our passage, zeal for your house has consumed me. But literally in the Hebrew, it's beautiful. The Hebrew literally says, zeal for your house has torn me to pieces. What's beautiful about Jesus, and maybe you've never seen this before, but Jesus is saying, I haven't come to set up and lead worship in the temple. I've come to be the temple. I've come to, at the cross, be torn to pieces. Some of us think that Jesus, when he would come, would bring condemnation, would tear us to pieces, would say, listen, you failed. As human beings, you failed as worshipers, and it's time for you to pay the piper. It's time for you to be torn in two. And instead, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus instead comes with indignation and says, look at yourselves. Look at how you don't love God. And instead what he does is zeal for, zeal for God and zeal for his house tore him to pieces that we might be made whole. Tore him to pieces that we might find healing. That's why Peter writes, by his wounds we are healed. By his death we find life. In his love, a love that includes anger, anger at our sins. But the way he dealt with that anger at the cross, we're going to sing it in a minute, is he took it upon himself that you and I might be made whole and might be forgiven. I'm a Clint Eastwood fan, and one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies is Gran Torino. Maybe you've seen it. And in it, uh, he plays this veteran, war veteran, and kind of recent widower named Walt. And he lives in this terrible neighborhood in Detroit. And he hates the neighborhood. He hates his neighbors. He kind of has a very, very cranky old man. And one night, this kid named Tao comes, and he's trying to get initiated into this gang. And to do so, he's, the thing they've got him trying to do is to steal... Uh, Walt's prized possession, which was a Ford Grand Torino. It's a pretty sweet classic car if you're a car person. And Tao can't get it started and he fails the right. And, and the gang, as they watch him fail, turn on him. And literally right in front of Walt's house, they, they're going to beat him to death because he's failed his right of passage. And Walt comes out with a shotgun and, and turns them all away. And it begins this beautiful friendship between Walt and Tao. But the gang won't let it go. And so the gang has come, they, they're, they're bent on killing not just Tal, but his family, and they do a drive-by shooting that kills the sister and almost kills Tal. And Walt's decided it's time he's got to do something and face this gang. So one night he goes to the gang's house where they hang out, and he's got a jacket in, and he, st- he goes to the front yard and he starts just yelling at them, telling them everything that they've done that's wrong, berating them in all the right ways, hoping that the neighborhood will hear and finally stand up to this gang. And this, now the time has come for him to stand up to them. And in this beautiful moment, he puts a cigarette in his mouth, and he reaches into his jacket. And you think he's reaching for a weapon, so does the gang. But instead, he reaches, and he pulls out a lighter, and it turns out he's totally unarmed. But it's too late. The gang has already opened fire, and they literally tear him to pieces with bullets. Bullets just fill him, and he dies. But the beautiful thing in the movie is is his death, him being torn to pieces, that begins to put together Tal's life. And begins to heal the life of his family. And when I look at that, that is what Jesus has come to do for you. He came 
not in anger to destroy you, but to be destroyed. He came not to bring condemnation, but to bear it in your place. He came to be torn to pieces that you might be made whole. So how does he, when that happens, when you, when you come to rest and believe in him in that way, how do you move from being what we're talking about, a consumer to a worshiper? Just three quick things and we're done. First, how do you move from a consumer to a worshiper? First, realize that if you have a God who isn't both full of grace and truth, you have an idol. You don't have the real God. Two, part of what it means for God to be God is God is the one we've sinned against. And God is the only one who can forgive us. We can't forgive ourselves. That's why the Bible is so big on confession. That we go to him and we tell him, Psalm 51, we tell him what we've done. We tell him what he knows but needs to hear to know that we might receive forgiveness. He's the only one that can give us forgiveness. And then three, we repent. Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. Turning from our idols and serving our idols to turning to living and serving serving and living for the real, true, living God, living for Jesus and finding our life in him. And what's interesting is we, lo- we live in a culture that loves confession, but we hate repentance. This, I mean, this is what, this is what Yikyak is. Yikyak is a place where I can, you can confess, but there's no, no place for change and repentance. And Jesus says, I've come for you to confess, but I'm going to bring transformation in your life and bring about repentance. And my question is simply for this, is have you met him? Do you know him? Has he turned tables over in your life in a place where you've come to rest in him? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, you love us enough to get angry. You love us enough to say hard things to us. You love us enough to turn over tables, not because you're mean, not because you're cranky, but because you know and do what is best and is driven by love. And I pray, Lord, that you would turn over the tables that need to be turned over tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Swimming, I got paid to fish for my 